When you think of classic short stories, a long list might come to mind. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County by Mark Twain. How about The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs? Or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button by F. Scott Fitzgerald? Or Arthur Conan Doyle's series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes? Did you know the most prolific short story writer of all time was Edgar Allan Poe? He only wrote one little-known novel, but he penned 65 different short stories. The Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven, The Telltale Heart, to name a few. But of all the short stories ever written, none holds a candle to the book of Ruth. And it was written by an unknown author. Different theories have been advanced, perhaps the prophet Samuel, maybe King David, but no one knows for sure. The penman is a mystery. Yet its inspiration was clearly the Holy Spirit. Ruth is a story of a young girl's faith and courage and loyalty. It's about a devoted friendship. It spotlights a sister's missed opportunity. The story begins with an old woman's bitterness over the tragic consequences of her husband's lack of faith. It ends with another man's redeeming love. And the hero of the story is God, a God of providence. You see, God works in the world in one of two ways. At times, he acts supernaturally. He does a miracle where all can see his grace and his glory. Miracles are visible and they're obvious. They're out in the open. But God also works behind the scenes in supernaturally natural ways. His invisible hand takes ordinary people in ordinary situations and maneuvers them into scenarios that perfectly fit his will and accomplish his purposes. Providence works under the radar. Mysteriously, imperceptibly, God engineers the pieces into place. He moves the players, he connects the dots, and then one day he shouts, checkmate! His overarching will has achieved another triumph. At the end of the book of Ruth, we're all going to marvel at God's providence. Well, the story begins, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now think of Ruth as an appendix to the preceding book, the book of Judges. This period of the Judges lasted 350 years. From the death of Joshua, all up until the appointment of King Saul, from around 1400 to 1050 BC. And this is one of the darkest stretches in all of Israeli history. The last verse in Judges sums up a generation. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was an age without conscience. Man reigned supreme. God's will was ignored. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? I read in Time Magazine one time five words that I think sum up our generation. Anything goes, but nothing lasts. Anything goes, but nothing lasts. Today we live in a moral vacuum. Nothing is off limits, and yet everything we try ends up woefully lacking. 
People today play hit or miss with major issues. They opt for the path of least resistance. The prevailing authority is the loudest opinion. Having eliminated God, life has become a guessing game. And Proverbs 14, 12 pronounces our sentence. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And the period of the judges was living proof. In fact, the famine here in Bethlehem was probably a commentary on the times. In the Old Testament, famine conditions were often God's means of judging His people. And yet in the midst of this incredible darkness, there was one shining light. One young woman stands out from the crowd. In a day of rebellion and selfishness and vice and skepticism, her life was one of dedication and sacrifice and virtue and faith. We'll get to her in a moment, but first, meet another family. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of her two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now here the writer provides us some names, which reminds me, what's in a name? I heard recently of a Pennsylvania man who tried to change his name. Gary Matthews, age 44, tried to legally change his name to Boomer the Dog. Seems that for the last 20 years, Boomer the Dog has been his nickname. Well, the judge refused. He said if Gary called 911 and identified himself as Boomer the Dog, the operator might likely mistake an emergency for a prank. Such a silly name would only cause confusion. And yet in contrast, God uses the names here in our text to bring greater clarity. Elimelech, it means, my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. And Ephrathah, the name of the region, means fruitful. And so check it out. Here's a guy whose God is king. He has a cutie for a wife. She's pleasant. They're prosperous. He lives in the house of bread. He praises God and bears fruit. He's living a good life. What more could a man want? And yet Elimelech's faith gets tested. A famine strikes. A downturn in the economy threatens the prosperity he's enjoyed. What's he going to do? Recently, I ran across the top 10 signs that we're in a bad economy. You need some evidence? Here are the top 10 signs that we're in a bad economy. Number 10, Robin Leach has a new show, Lifestyles of the People Who Still Have a Job. Number 9, Dr. Seuss is now eating green eggs and Spam. It's tough times. Number eight, pro baseball players have switched from steroids to Flintstone vitamins. It's just cheaper. Number seven, the highest paying job in town is jury duty. <laughs> Number six, and I'm speaking here in faith, 
Instead of starting the Super Bowl this year with a coin toss, that's too expensive, they'll have the Falcons and the Patriots play a game of rock, paper, scissors. How's that? That's speaking in faith, by the way. Number five, times are tough when Bill Gates has to switch his internet service to dial up. Pretty tough times. Number four, Hot Wheels and Matchbox stocks are trading higher than GM. Number three, a truckload of Americans was recently caught sneaking into Mexico. <laughs> Number two, the mafia is laying off judges. You know time is tough when that happens. And the number one way to know we're in a tough economy, Motel 6 won't leave the light on anymore. Well, Elimelech also faced some dreadful conditions. His name means my God is king. But rather than believe that truth, rather than trust in his God, he takes matters into his own hands. He analyzes the job opportunities and the real estate markets and the cost of living. And he thinks that life would just be better down in Moab. He never prioritizes spiritual concerns. You see, Moab was a region about 50 miles from Bethlehem. It sat on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. But it was a million miles from the will of God. Moab got its start when Abraham's nephew Lot had incest with his own daughter. She sired a son and named him Moab. And that was the high point of their history. It goes downhill from there. They ended up an idolatrous people. They worshipped a god, a false god called Chemosh by offering child sacrifices. You see, Moab was on the wilderness side of the Jordan River. When Moses brought Israel into the promised land, they came through Moab. But that meant for an Israeli, the direction from Israel to Moab was backwards. You don't want to go backwards. And yet because of fear and insecurity and panic and a lack of faith, Elimelech uprooted his family from the place of God's blessing and moved them to a foreign land with false gods and evil men and wicked practices. Elimelech should have trusted God. He should have stuck it out in Bethlehem, the land that God had given his forefathers thousands of years earlier. But he didn't. He forgot that his God was king. He resorted to his own wisdom. He leaned on his own understanding. He ran. He tried to escape to Moab. And the tragic results were immediate. Notice two more names, Malon and Chilion. Now, I know they're in the Bible, but if you have two sons, don't name them Malon and Chilion. It might sound cool, but don't use those names. Malon means sick. Chilion means tired. Outside the will of God, Elimelech and Naomi, they just got sick and tired. They just got sick and tired of life. That'll happen to you when you walk outside God's will. I'll never forget someone telling me, Sandy, there are certain splinters in the tree of life you don't even know about until you slide backwards. It's true. You don't feel the pricks and the dangers on the way up. It's only when you slide backwards. I'll never forget one family. The young man was gloriously saved. His whole family followed suit. Mom, little brother, even dad, they came to know Jesus here at our church. 
They were learning. They were growing. God was blessing. And then one day they announced that the whole family was going to pick up and move to Detroit. Dad worked for an automotive manufacturer, and he was offered a position in the home office. It was only for a few dollars more, but man, this will be a boost to my career. I was so skeptical. I thought, why uproot your wife and kids from a place where they're growing, where they're prospering spiritually for just a few measly more dollars? The move ended up a tragic mistake. The boys struggled. No one was happy. And what about his career? Well, I'm not so sure. I've lost touch. But what, with what's happened in the automotive industry, I would surmise that this guy's probably out of a job. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's always a sin to move your family. But it always amazes me the criteria that people use when faced with a decision. A bigger house. A better neighborhood. More money. Social status. Is it really worth it? You see, very few people consider the spiritual dynamics. Are you in a place where you're being cared for and well-fed? Are you being challenged and used by God? Do you have Christian friends? Are you where God's called you to be? If you are, you're in a good place, a great place. Why move? Rather than tightening his belt and hunkering down and learning to do more with less and trusting God to provide his needs, all lessons that would have benefited him had he learned them, instead Elimelech bails. He takes off for the greener grass. You know, this is what happens when a single Christian gets lonely and starts gravitating back toward the club scene. Or when a Christian businessman fails to meet his quota and suddenly starts taking little shortcuts. Or a college student who's a Christian gets pressed and pressured to conform and compromise his standards. This is what happens when a Christian struggling with life leans back on the sinful crutches that used to prop him or her up. You see, God is in Bethlehem. Oh, but Moab, that's just easier. A recession, limited job opportunities, tighter finances have shaken Elimelech's faith. What are our own troublesome times doing to our faith? Well, notice verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. How ironic. He went to Moab because he was afraid he'd die in Bethlehem, but he dies anyway. You see, he didn't realize that the safest place to be is inside God's will. The most dangerous place to be is outside the will of God. You see, it's safer in a stormy sea with God than it is in the calmest waters without Him. Elimelech dies and his wife Naomi, we're told, was left and her two sons. Now the sons took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Notice to the time frame. Ten long years. A whole decade. You know, when Elimelech moved to Moab, I'm sure he had in his mind just a short visit. You know, we'll just stay a few months. But they remained there ten years. Step away from God and there's no guarantee, my friend, you'll ever get back. This is the danger of backsliding. It, it starts out so innocently. You rationalize it in a thousand ways, but before you know it, you're trapped in a deadly tailspin. Hey, if you hear nothing else I say today, please remember this. When you violate God's will, it is never, ever a shortcut. 
you have opted for a long and lethal detour. We all need to memorize Psalm 86, verse 11. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. You never go wrong when you walk with God. But it gets worse for Naomi. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. This is what no parent ever wants to endure. Nobody wants to ever bury their kids. Hey, I plan on Zach preaching my funeral, not vice versa. Here's another tragedy brought on by Elimelech's faithlessness. Verse 6, Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Now don't read too much into Naomi's decision to return home. It was probably more opportunism than faith. She's still looking for the easy way. This time it just happens to be that Bethlehem has bread. So let's head home. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now how far they journeyed, we don't know. But at some point, Naomi stopped. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them. and They lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi sends them back to Moab. She realizes that among her own, their own people, they'll stand a better chance to remarry and begin a new life. Obviously, though, it shows the depth of emotion there existed between this woman and her two daughter-in-laws. I'm sure you realize relationships with mother-in-laws are, are pretty notorious. Notoriously rocky, you might say. Have you noticed this? Did you know that mother-in-laws have a reputation? It's true. It's been said behind, behind every successful man are two women. A good wife and a surprised mother-in-law. Once a friend of mine and I, we were talking about our mother-in-laws. And I happened to mention that mine was living in Oregon, 2,000 miles away. He said, my, oh my, I love my mother-in-law so much that if she lived that far away, I'd try to get her to move. I said, well, I've tried, but she won't go to Japan. (laughs) I'm just joshing. I love my mother-in-law, in case this CD ever gets back to her. We have a great relationship, she and I. As did Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. When Naomi cuts the girls loose and sends them home, they weep. They they kiss each other. At first, they even balk at her suggestion, verse 10. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? She's speaking here of a Hebrew custom. Live a right marriage. Levere is the Latin for brother-in-law. And among Jews, when a man died, it was his brother's obligation to marry his widowed sister-in-law. If his brother died childless, the brother-in-law would sire a son who would then carry on his brother's name. Well, Naomi sees this as a problem. 
Her only two sons are already dead. Verse 12. She says, turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? I mean, these girls, are you going to wait 18, 20 years for Naomi's non-son to reach marriageable age? She answers it herself. She says, no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Wow. And who does Naomi blame for her losses and the tragic outcome of her life? God. Hey, if you don't want to become a blamer, then be careful about what you believe. Understand, three truths are taught in this story. Some people wrestle with these truths their whole life long. I suggest to you this morning that you believe all three truths. The first truth is man's free will. You see, part of being made in God's image is the ability to choose. God has given to human beings the privilege of self-determination. We decide our own destiny. We make choices that even God Almighty honors. I'm sure that God warned Elimelech not to go to Moab. He might even have sent an angel to try to talk him down. But when he decided to go, God didn't stop him. And God won't stop you from making foolish choices. It might break his heart, but he respects our decision. In fact, did you know that everyone in hell is there because they chose to be there? God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go there. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 teaches it's not God's will that anyone should perish. You see, God has given human beings a free will. In a sense, we determine our own destiny. But this book also teaches a second truth. God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God governs all things. That He has ultimate control over all that happens in the universe and in my life. And God is never aimless. He has a plan. Often he intervenes in my life to accomplish that plan and purpose. And when that happens, we call it providence. Hey, never doubt God's sovereignty. Anything less than his total sovereignty diminishes God. It means that he's less than all-powerful, less than all-knowing. Hey, the God of the Bible isn't subject to time or space or matter. He knows no limits, no boundaries. A sovereign God does whatever and whenever He pleases. But there's a third doctrine taught in the book of Ruth that helps us to digest the first two. And that's this. God loves you. He really does. God loves us. He's kind and compassionate. He's a God who looks out for His people. He's a God who wants to bless. God is for us, not against us. You see, the love of God is not apparent in the first chapter, at least as much as it will be in the remainder of the book. But Ruth is going to go home with Naomi, and the mysterious hand of God is going to begin to work on their behalf. And providence is going to steer their lives and engineer them into God's richest blessings. But notice what happens in Naomi, the blamer's mind. She ignores the first truth. She blames God for being cruel to her. She even lets her own husband off the hook. 
If I remember correctly, I think the old boy chose to leave Bethlehem in God's provision for greener grass in Moab. He made some mistakes. Naomi needs to take responsibility for their own choices. But notice too, she ignores this third truth that God loves her. She says, yes, God allowed her husband to die. Yes, God could have prevented the death of her sons. But she didn't realize that that didn't negate God's love for her. Just because bad things happened didn't mean God didn't love her. You see, Naomi lost all faith in the grace of God. Naomi doesn't even acknowledge the two devoted daughter-in-laws she got out of the experience. These girls were a blessing in disguise. You see, there are always traces of God's love, even in the worst of circumstances. And yet somewhere in Moab, Naomi stopped believing in God's love for her. Somewhere along the line, have you stopped believing that God loves you? Hey, God doesn't promise us an easy life. We invited sin into the world. And in doing so, threw open the door to famine and sickness and death and hardship. On a macro scale, when bad stuff happens, God is honoring the choice of all mankind who rebelled against Him. Sin isn't God's design. Sin's consequences break God's heart because He loves us. I believe in free will. I make choices, good and bad, and I reap what I sow. In a sense, my life is an amalgamation of the choices that I've made. And I believe in God's sovereignty. Nothing happens in my life that God does not at least allow. Every roll of the dice, every bounce of the football is subject to God's will. God is in control. He never goes to sleep at the helm. But you see, if my faith stops there, then I'll end up depressed and defeated. For if I only believe in my choices or in God's sovereignty, then when bad stuff does happen, and it will, I'll either conclude myself a failure or I'll be tempted to conclude that God is mean and cruel and vindictive. God could have stopped my spouse from dying. He could have saved my sons. This was Naomi's conclusion. She blamed God. She said, the Lord has gone out against me. This is why she needs to believe more. And this is why you need to believe more. Yes, you're responsible for your own decisions. And yes, God is sovereign. But come what may, for better or worse, you've got to believe that God loves you. He really loves you. Even if you made a bad choice, if you repent and trust in Him, God can reverse the consequences of your sin. God can restore to you what you don't deserve. He will redeem your life. He'll bless you despite your poor and sinful choices. He's done that in my life. He can do it in your life. God can and will unravel the messes that you've made. That's God's grace and He loves you. And even when God chooses not to stop a calamity from occurring, pain or death or loss or grief, you've got to believe that it comes to you. It's been sent by God to you with a redeeming purpose attached. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And He loves you and wants to bring good things into your life. God still loves you. And yet I can hear some of you scream. Your soul screams out this morning. How can God love me after what I've been through? 
That's how Naomi felt after three funerals in a matter of a few months. My word, she buried her husband, then her two sons. This was brutal. But understand, the book is adamant. Despite the bad stuff, God still loved Naomi. And he had blessings. He was resurrecting even out of the ashes of her loved ones. This is why against all odds, despite evidence to the contrary, even when your feelings say otherwise, you have to trust that God loves you. This is what it means to have faith. You've got to trust in all three truths. Back to the story. Well, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You know, it's so sad how grief can skewer our judgment. In sending the girls back to Moab, Naomi was basically condemning their souls to hell. She was so depressed, she had gotten so down on God, that she doesn't even see how that a Moabite girl would be better off with her. In Israel, with God's people serving the one true God, than going back to her idols. She says, Ruth, my, Ruth you might as well go back to your idols. Naomi's become so cynical. Maybe the Moabite gods will treat you better than my God has treated me. That's what she's saying. She's become bitter. And sadly, Orpah, she went free. She made the decision when pressed to go back to her pagan god. She went. She went back to her false religion. Orpah went free. Orpah went free. <laughs> do, do you know that Oprah Winfrey was originally named after this character in the Bible, Orpah. According to Wikipedia, I use only the best sources. <laughs> but according to Wikipedia, members of her own family couldn't pronounce Orpah, so she went with what was easier for them, Oprah. Oprah was raised in a Christian family. But like Orpah, she turned back. Today, she denies Orthodox Christianity. She's become the priestess of paganism. She's living up to her namesake. You see, Orpah, she tried God. You know, she experimented with the truth. But when she didn't get the results that she wanted, she walked away. Verse 16, But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What a beautiful expression of love and loyalty. You know, these words are often heard in wedding ceremonies. But originally they were spoken as a young lady's devotion to her mother-in-law. A pledge of loyalty between two friends. You know, chances are Ruth had never been to Israel. She knew little of God in the Bible. And yet she had a strong faith. She had faith enough to trust in Naomi's God even when Naomi's own faith had failed. Ruth's faith was for better or worse. It was for a lifetime. 
And verse 18 tells us, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. In other words, she stopped trying to send her home. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. Bethlehem was a tiny little village. And I'm sure any visitor would have caused a stir. But people remembered Naomi. Here's a local girl, come home. But the women said, is this Naomi? Have you ever seen a person who's 30 years old, but they look 50? You know, there's an old saying, road hard and put up wet. <laughs> I mean, sin can take a devastating toll. I've heard it put, nature has a lot to do with a person's appearance, but after the age of 30, each person becomes responsible for his own face. <laughs> In other words, you're deciding where those creases are going to go. Naomi left Bethlehem, a young beauty. Her name meant pleasant. She was a looker. And she's only been gone 10 years. Yet upon her return, she looks 50 years older. A haggard face, baggy eyes, deep creases. And Naomi knows it. Verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The name Mara means bitter. She's saying, Don't call me pleasant anymore. There's nothing pleasant about my life. I'm now a bitter old lady. You see, this is what Moab does to a person. This is what backsliding from God will do to a person. You take those little shortcuts. They promise prosperity, but they end up yielding disappointment and anger and frustration and remorse and bitterness. Always remember, where the grass looks greener, the water bill is higher. When you fail to trust God and bolt from His will, there is a price to be paid. Well, Naomi shares her testimony, verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Notice, there are four kinds of people represented here in chapter 1. First, there's Elimelech. He knows that his God is king, but he doesn't live like it. Here's a person who's all about putting food on the table. He does whatever it takes to get ahead in this life, yet he ignores God and the life to come and the spiritual domain, dominion of life, which is really what matters. He's become oblivious to the things that matter most. Are you an Elimelech? Second, there's Orpah. Oh, she tried Christianity, sort of like yoga and Weight Watchers. You know, but when she didn't get what she wanted, she tossed in the towel. God didn't answer my prayer the way I thought He should. He didn't provide me a spouse. He didn't, it wasn't a quick solution to my financial problems. And so she kissed it all goodbye. She went back to Moab. I hope you're not an Orpah. And third, there's Naomi. She's bitter. She's become a quitter. She ignores her own choices She's concluded that God is cruel. He's the problem. She stopped believing in a loving God. She's copped an attitude and become cynical. Are you Naomi? Or you could be a Ruth. 
a person of faith. Yes, God honors our free will. Yes, he is sovereign and at times even lets bad stuff happen. But yes, he loves us and all his plans are ultimately good. You see, faith is yes, yes, and yes. This is hard faith. But this, my friend, is real faith. And this is the faith that we see vindicated in the book of Ruth. I hope you'll dare to model this type of faith. Well, chapter 1 closes. So so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And that's hope. Barley harvest was in the spring of the year, probably the month of April. It marked a new season. Winter is now over. New life is about to bud. And God is about to do a new work in the life of Ruth and Naomi. Just as he'll do a new work in you. If you'll rise up in faith and say yes, yes, and yes. Father, thank you for your words today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your gentle hand of providence. Lord, we're on a path. We're in a maze. And we don't always know the next turn. What to take, what to do. Things happen beyond our control, outside of our grasp. Sometimes we feel like a pinball, just sort of bouncing around in the, in the game. But Lord, you're in control. And you care about us. And even when we've made bad choices and made bad decisions, Lord, you're still there. You're faithful to us. You're willing and able to even correct the trajectory of our life, to take us on a downward course and turn us around and get us back going on an upward course, back into the path of blessing. And Lord, even when bad things do happen, Lord, we know they come attached with great and glorious purposes. And they come attached with your love because you do love us and you do care for us. And I pray for that person here today, Lord, who's given up on you, who's been down there in Moab. And somewhere in Moab, they lost their faith and their trust that you love them. And they've been floundering ever since. I pray that today, Lord, they would come back to you. They would come back to Bethlehem in a sense. That they would come back to that place of trust and obedience to you. And they would come back to faith in you. And they would choose to believe that you do love them. And that you do care for them. It's a choice. We can choose faith or we can choose doubt. I pray that today, Lord, we would choose faith. And that we would trust you. And your amazing grace toward us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care. I pray that you'll help many people here today. As we start out this new year, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to believe and trust. Make wise decisions. Trust in your sovereignty. But also believe that you love us no matter what. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.